The workers were told only what they needed to know. They tunneled in small groups, apart from each other, with only a local sense of where the line was coming from or where it was going to. They were specifically not told of the line's purpose, to make sure they didn't reveal that purpose to others. All the time, people are asking us, is this top secret? Is it the government? I just said, yeah, said one worker. The workers might not have known what the line was for, but they knew that it had enemies. They all knew to be alert to potential threats. If they saw anyone digging near the line, for instance, or noticed anyone asking a lot of questions about it, they were to report what they'd seen immediately to the head office. Otherwise, they were to say as little as possible. If people asked them what they were doing, they were to say, just laying fiber. That usually ended the conversation, but if it didn't, it didn't really matter. The construction crews were as bewildered as anyone. They were used to digging tunnels that connected cities to other cities and people to other people. This line didn't connect anyone to anyone else. Its sole purpose, as far as they could see, was to be as straight as possible, even if that meant they had to rock saw through a mountain rather than take the obvious way around it. Why? Right up until the end, most workers didn't even ask the question. The country was flirting with another depression, and they were just happy for the work. As Dan Spivey said, no one knew why. People began to make their reasons up. Spivey was the closest thing the workers had to an explanation for the line, or the bed they were digging for it. And Spivey was by nature tight-lipped, one of those circumspect Southerners with more thoughts than he cared to share. He'd been born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi, and on those rare occasions he spoke, he sounded as if he had never left. He'd just turned 40, but was still as lean as a teenager, with the face of a Walker Evans tenant farmer. After some unsatisfying years working as a stockbroker in Jackson, he had quit, as he put it, to do something more sporting. That turned out to be renting a seat on the Chicago Board Options Exchange and making markets for his own account. Like every other trader on the Chicago exchanges, he saw how much money could be made trading futures contracts in Chicago against the present prices of the individual stocks trading in New York and New Jersey. Every day there were thousands of moments when the prices were out of whack, when, for instance, you could sell the futures contract for more than the price of the stocks that comprised it. To capture the profits, you had to be fast to both markets at once. What was meant by fast was changing rapidly. In the old days, before, say, 2007, the speed with which a trader could execute had human limits. Human beings worked on the floors of the exchanges, and if you wanted to buy or sell anything, you had to pass through them. The exchanges by 2007 were simply stacks of computers in data centers. The speed with which trades occurred on them was no longer constrained by people. The only constraint 
was how fast an electronic signal could travel between Chicago and New York, or, more precisely, between the data center in Chicago that housed the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and a data center beside the NASDAQ Stock Exchange in Carteret, New Jersey. What Spivey had realized by 2008 was that there was a big difference between the trading speed that was available between these exchanges and the trading speed that was theoretically possible. Given the speed of light in fiber, it should have been possible for a trader who needed to trade in both places at once to send his order from Chicago to New York and back in roughly 12 milliseconds, or roughly a tenth of the time it takes you to blink your eyes, if you blink as fast as you can.